You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 240. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. I know for those of you guys who are uh, watching the video, I've rearranged things a little bit. It might be a little bit weird, but why not try something different every once in a while? Uh, yes, this is a a fully solo uh, show on video, which is always very interesting. Uh, so how are you? It's, uh, what is it, um, Monday, August, uh, August, I don't even know what it is, August 22nd, 2022. Um, just finished up this uh, last week with the Better Call Saul Finale. I don't know who else saw that, but I have been uh, really into Better Call Saul over the last uh, over the last few years, and I thought they really finished up the show uh, uh, very well. I don't want to give any spoilers, of course, but uh, it's well worth listening to. And of course, that's the end of the Breaking Bad universe. So end of an era. So now now it's Monday night, and I have nothing to do. Very uh, <laughs> very different, except put out the podcast, of course. But uh, you know. Uh, after I put out the podcast, because Better Call Saul came out at nine, and this podcast has uh, has come out at eight. Uh, so, uh, yeah, oh, I'd love to talk about it, but we can't do spoilers. So let's move on to the topic of the day. We're going to talk about the 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 crypto verse, the crypto cosm, or whatever you're going to call it today. Uh, I have a little bit more uh, to add because there have been so many developments, um, and then later on, our uh, our. Uh, 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 distribution of the week is the multinomial distribution. So we'll get into that as well. So crypto, I believe that right now cryptocurrency is turning a corner into the unknown because back in episode 233, that was maybe a month and a half ago, we covered the start of what has been called the crypto winter. This isn't the first crypto winter. There's been plenty of crypto winters, uh, you know, in, in, in the past. There was one famously in 2015, throughout 2015, really uh, parts of 2014 to 2015. Uh, that was the, the Mt. Gox crypto winter. Uh, there was one in, in 2018 to 2019 that was pretty bad. And then there's one right now. And each time we've gotten out of it and very interesting things have happened during that winter, uh, which is, you know, you use these terms crypto winter, but I think really what we're talking about is when it comes to emerging technology, there's often a hype and then there's a trough of disillusionment as it's called. And then, uh, and then it, it, it comes back, um, as you know, it's also known as let's, let's use a simpler term, the hype cycle. Uh, so of course, all of these new technologies come in, uh, hype cycles. And so, we uh, discussed the start of what's called this latest crypto winter back in early July in the midst of a series of, of token collapses, which led to some actual companies going bankrupt and liquidity crunches and all that, uh, uh, the so-called crypto contagion. And that's stuff that happens uh, you know, in finance when things go wrong. And a few more of those aftershocks uh, have occurred since that last episode, the last time we spoke about this, but that's not really what we cover here on the local maximum. I'm not too interested in. Well, I mean, I might be interested. In, you know, I might be interested in it, but I feel like it's not good for the podcast to cover to cover what's going on with every little crypto company. Um, what's interesting about crypto winter, any 
trough of disillusionment, valley of disillusionment in, in emerging technology, uh, is what's happening underneath. How is the technology changing? How are the, the plates shifting this winter that will set up either the next phase of crypto adoption or the next wave of innovations or possibly you know, the next bull run, if you want to think of it uh, in terms of investors. I think there, you know, there are people who talk about uh, crypto and, and, you know, they say, well, the investment side is evil. And then, you know, we, we only care about the technology. That's what people say in the winter. Oh, yeah, the price is down. We care only about the technology. Um, and then, you know, there are people who don't care at all about the technology and only want to make money. But, you know, uh, if you're interested in technology, I think you should be interested in the, uh, you know, in the uh, in the trades to make as well, just to to play along with it because that's an important part of the technology. Um, but I'm kind of I'm kind of getting on here. Let's uh, let, let's get into uh, let's get into it. Uh, several big changes are coming down the line. The large gorilla in the room over the next month is the so-called Ethereum merge, which I believe it's happening on September 15th or so, somewhere around there. Um, uh, this is this is happening in September. What is it? So uh, the proof of work, uh, it, it, Ethereum is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, what is proof of work? Proof of work is the original system proposed by Satoshi Nakamoto in the Bitcoin white paper. Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency and it used proof of work where coins are rewarded to so-called miners who did the most work on average because you know they broke a cryptographic hash you could break a cryptographic hash on the first try but on average you know there's a certain amount of time it takes to break a cryptographic hash and so the ones who the the, the um, miners do it the most uh, have the most we can surmise as have the most uh, computing power because there's no kind of shortcuts to um, doing those computations so this scheme solved the inherent problem of scarcity and double spending in digital assets, um, you know, because if, if you were just, uh, the, the alternative is either to have the ledger, how much Bitcoin does everyone have is to have it in a database, and then you're just a company, and there's nothing too interesting about that, um, and, and those types of currencies have been, have been shut down before, and it, it wouldn't have a purpose. And then if you want it to be decentralized, uh, if you don't solve this problem, then the question of who owns what and how can you get people to agree can't be solved. So this solved that problem. Um, the proof of stake concept uh, is an alternative. It's not based on who did the most work. It's based on who has the most value in the system. So for example, if it were Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not proof of stake, but if it were, I would stake some Bitcoin. In other words, I'd own it, I'd lock it somehow, and that gives me kind of votes in determining how the system is going to proceed, like which, uh, you know, what the next block is and all of that and, and uh, which, which transactions go through. And so the people who have the most value in the system, now they get control over it. Um, now, of course, there's a problem of distributing the coins in the first place if you're going to do that because if you have proof of stake, you know, okay, the people who own the most coins have, uh, have control. Who starts out owning the most coins? Uh, Ethereum is not going to have this problem because they've already distributed this through pr proof of work. Um, and also, proof of stake doesn't solve the scarcity problem 
like proof of work does as well at first. Um, and it seems like there are a few ways to hack it and a few uh, kind of programming hacks are needed to ensure that it's actually expensive and very difficult to double spend, particularly if someone has, let's say someone has a ton of Ethereum, can they just use that to double spend in the system? Um, but uh, a lot of safeguards have been experimented with, put into place, a lot of different schemes. Proof of stake coins have existed for around 10 years. I believe the first one came out in 2012. That was PeerCoin. And uh, these problems have been ironed out for a long time. So what is the hoped-for outcome for the Ethereum developers, for the people who are pushing this change? Without proof of work, Ethereum miners are put out of business. This is kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, on the, and by the way, Ethereum runs all of, almost all the time when you hear about smart contracts, NFTs, uh, they're all going on Ethereum. So decentralized betting. Um, and uh, you know, I've gone through some of the use cases for Ethereum here a lot. And I feel like it's um, uh, a lot of people out there don't actually use it on their day-to-day, -day, which is a little bit, you know, um, you know, which makes it a little hard to explain. But I do think that this uh, Ethereum thing kind of under, is, is one of the uh, main tools in the, new, uh, in the new Web3 crypto economy. So we really have to follow it. Obviously, for those of you who are unaware, it's the second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin, and a lot of tokens live on the Ethereum blockchain. So there's a lot of coins that, that, that types that, 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 that kind of piggyback off of Ethereum. So what does it mean in the world without miners? On the plus side, it costs less to run the network. It probably leads to greater Ethereum value in and of itself. It will lead to faster transactions, less fees. Uh, because the miners no longer need to be paid, it lowers the inflation rate of uh, the new Ethereum being created. So it could lead to, to a new bull market in that way, just like historically, uh, with Bitcoin, there have been uh, Bitcoin halvings uh, periodically every four years where the amount of issuance gets cut in half, and that, uh, that usually has uh, 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 pre-day been followed by this huge bull run. Now, that hasn't happened for smaller coins that have cut their issuance, and I think it's because the, the crypto market is, is such, you know, is, is so controlled uh, but Bitcoin is such a big gorilla in the bit in the crypto market that maybe for smaller ones it doesn't affect. But Ethereum being number two, maybe it will have a very large effect. We can guess, um, and uh, and and yeah, so th that's the case for it. So what are the criticisms? What can go wrong? Well, first of all, without the miners, uh, Ethereum will be validated by m far fewer organizations than it had been before. So it'll be validated by. Uh, the largest Ethereum holders, um, perhaps some, perhaps uh, the, the, the development organization, a few organizations, perhaps some volunteers. Um, it's still an open system, so anyone can still validate and, and uh, be, be a validator for Ethereum in a, proof of, uh, in a proof of stake system, but there's far less of an economic incentive to do so. There's some, but far less. So the mining becomes less uh, uh, decentralized, it becomes more centralized, uh, that possibly means it's less secure in the sense that, uh, not in the sense of like your Ethereum is going to be stolen or anything, but possibly in the sense that there might be more wiggle room for these validators to kind of manipulate the rules in favor of the big players. Possibly, I, I mean, you know, the, 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 
possibility has been brought up, you know, can they censor transactions? Right now, the, uh, you know, the, the culture is to say, no, we don't censor transactions, but we know how fast that can change. Uh, so, um, so yeah, that is certainly a downside. And um, uh, it also means that certain types of government regulation will be easier, as we'll see in a minute when we talk about Tornado Cash, which is the big crypto news uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, one question that I ask myself is, could there be like an, a total disaster when this happened where the entire ship goes down? And, you know, I hope not. There's so many billions and billions of dollars, I think $100 billion uh, riding on Ethereum. Um, I kind of doubt it. Um, I, I, I've thought about the proposal and I, I, I've read a lot about the Ethereum proposal and gathered a lot of opinions. And generally, the criticism of the Ethereum merge seems to be centered on around, well, Ethereum is becoming something I no longer want or no longer support. It doesn't fit into how I think cryptocurrency should work. I don't think it's going to be as valuable. But because this has been in development and tested for so long, uh, you know, the tech will very, very likely work and the network will continue. Uh, if I'm wrong about this, obviously it'll be a huge learning moment for, for many involved. But uh, uh, even the biggest critics who are saying it's very dangerous are saying it's still very likely to work. But, you know, we'll, we'll find out. Um, but something else could happen. Some, something really interesting could happen. And because a lot of people are asking, well, all these people invested in this mining equipment for proof of work, uh, you know, they bought computers, they bought, a they bought ASICs, they bought specialized hardware. Uh, what happens to the miners? Uh, they get put out of work. I guess that was the, uh, the, the, that was the headline in an Ars Technica article. They all get put out of work, uh, which, uh, which I'll link on the local maximum, localmaxradio.com slash 240. Um, there is some speculation, though, that, uh, you know, they have a few tricks up their, their sleeve, one is that they can move to another coin called Ethereum Classic. Um, so Ethereum Classic was Ethereum. This was the last time there was a, a, a split back in 2016. Uh, let's see if I can explain it. Basically, one of the big smart contracts in Ethereum that was uh, doling out lots of money to lots of people, someone found a hack and stole a lot of money from it. And the people in Ethereum Classic said, well, code is law. If you can hack it, you get it. That's great. We're just going to keep going. The Ethereum developers said, wait a minute, this is really bad. Let's, uh, uh, let's change it so we could kind of undo that and, and we'll just give ourselves a mulligan. And so that became Ethereum. Ethereum Classic said, no, we're going to stick with the rules that we have. And Ethereum Classic has, been, uh, has had a much smaller community, but it has maintained some value uh, over the last six years. And so basically, if you had Ethereum before 2016, you were able to split your coins. So if I had uh, 10 Ethereum, I then had uh, 10 Ethereum new, and then I also had 10 Ethereum classic. So you, you, you got to uh, enjoy both coins and you can kind of sell one or, or sell the other. And both chains have survived on. Ethereum has done much better than Ethereum classic, but Ethereum classic has been uh, uh, not too shabby as an investment. And I think 95 of the smart contracts in the world are on Ethereum, but Ethereum classic has has some, and these things don't seem to, to die. They seem to just keep going on and on, maybe because there's speculation that they can kind of, uh, uh, you know, that they can kind of piggyback off of one of these big events and then, you know, some new interest comes in every few years. Uh, so, okay, Ethereum Classic 
they will stay on proof of work. So anyone who is mining on Ethereum can now mine on Ethereum Classic, making a lot less money, but they already invested in this hardware, so might as well do it. Um, some of those miners, they want to fork off again of Ethereum to create their own coin, now called uh, ETH POW, Ethereum Proof of Work. Uh, so it's like, okay, Ethereum can actually split again. Uh, and then, so anyone who holds Ethereum now, if you hold, people hold a lot less Ethereum now, let's say you hold one Ethereum now, if this fork occurs, then you'll have one Ethereum and you'll have another FPOW. Now, uh, currently futures are being sold of FPOW. If it exists, they're worth $50, um, according to CoinMarketCap, or about 3% of the price of Ethereum. So that means if that ends up being the price, if you could somehow split your Ethereum and FPOW very quickly and sell that, usually usually it takes some technical know-how and time. And usually if you have your coins, like say in Coinbase, that's not going to happen. Uh, but you could get something like a 3% dividend. So not necessarily bad for F holders, although it could cause some chaos in the, in the kind of industry as a whole and in the, in the landscape as a whole. Um, and of course, uh, so that's just kind of the futures price. It, 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 all of these things are worth nothing if the split doesn't happen, which means I think if it does happen, it would probably be worth a bit more than $50. Um, but it gets really messed up if this happens. So first of all, a bunch of people have been staking their Ethereum early in anticipation for this merge. And so now that becomes staked Ethereum uh, and they can unstake it once the merge occurs uh, and that becomes Ethereum used for uh, you know, used for uh, proof of stake mining. Now, in the chain that uh, that relies on proof of work, still that never happens. So, if you've staked your Ethereum, you might have gotten some interest off of that on the Ethereum chain, but it's going to be stuck forever in the FPOW chain. So, you would not be able to uh, um, uh, take advantage of uh, of that of that fork. Um, I'm guessing it might be about even how much you get. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is even. Maybe you got interest here and you got, or you could have gotten the fork here and either one you would have gotten the same amount. But uh, um, it would be kind of interesting to compare uh, those two choices if that happens. And um, also, you know, Ethereum is a lot more complicated than it was in 2016, the last time it split. split. So if it splits now, does that mean that every token built on Ethereum gets split, every smart contract split. Let's say I create a token. I, let's say I created a token on Ethereum and it was called MaxCoin. Uh, does that mean that now there's a MaxCoin Ethereum and a MaxCoin POW, depending on you know which, uh, which chain we're talking about? So that means like every token splits and every smart contract splits. And if you have an NFT on Ethereum, now there are two versions of that NFT. There's one version on Ethereum and one version on FPOW. Can you sell one and keep the other? Uh, what if it's, uh, you know, what if the use case for that is a, um, is kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a proof of authenticity, which is like what, how a lot of these things are sold. Now there are two of them and you sell one and, and one person owns one and one person owns the other, then, you know, Whoever is recognizing that proof of authenticity will have to choose uh, which chain they they uh, they support. It'll probably be the main chain, which means the FPOW version wouldn't be worth anything, but they might put some weight in the FPOW version. I don't know. If someone created a token on Ethereum like wrapped Bitcoin, 
So that's wrapped Bitcoin is when you kind of uh, give an organization your Bitcoin and then they have a token on Ethereum that represents that Bitcoin that you could exchange back into Bitcoin. Uh, if you have wrapped Bitcoin, uh, then there are not two versions. What they'd likely do is they'd likely say, hey, we'll pay out Bitcoin on the main chain. If you have still have wrapped Bitcoin on the FPOW chain, do they say you just get nothing? I, that's what I'm guessing, um, which is okay because now you have it on both chains. And if you wanted to buy it on the FPOW chain, then you'd know at that point that they're not recognizing it. Um, I hope I'm, I'm making a little sense here, but you could just see how complicated this gets. Um, and, and of course, I think sometimes things will work on both chains. If you have some bet on Ethereum that, you know, if there's, if, if uh, perhaps some bet on the internals of the system, let's say you have some bet on, um, you know, uh, how, how, how many blocks there'll be at this point in time and the bet pays out in Ethereum. Well, the bet might pay out one way in F and it might pay out another way in F Classic. It might resolve on both chains, could resolve the same way, could resolve different ways. Uh, all sorts of different weird things can go on. And so this, all of this complication, I started thinking of it and it makes me think that um, this fork probably will not happen just from the complication, just from how complicated it gets. Or if it does happen, it will be worth very little. But we'll find out. Uh, and, and, you know, it'll be fascinating to see what happens in this point of the crypto saga. It seems like it's much cleaner for them to just go to F Classic. Uh, and F Classic, the, the, the ticker symbol for that is ETC. It can be bought and sold and you know, most, um, almost every, uh, almost every exchange, uh, it might be an interesting investment right now. I don't know for, for that reason, you know, all of these different approaches for crypto are being proposed and people are arguing very vociferously for them in a few decades. We'll know which approach won out, but for now we just have to follow in real time and, and make some educated guesses. I don't know, like, you know, I don't know if Betamax is, is going to win or not. Well, now we know, but back then you didn't know. Okay. So um, now what is happening with something called Tornado Cash? That is an interesting uh, story. Tornado Cash is what's known as a mixer. Uh, imagine a mixer like this. Suppose we all have $100 bills. I should have actually brought a $100 bill to this for, uh, for a demonstration. But suppose I am holding a $100 bill, but the bills are marked so that they can be tracked by the government or something like that. A large number of people put their $100 bills into a pool and the bills get mixed up. I'm imagining one of those like, you know, carnival machines where it goes into a tornado because it's tornado cash. And now everyone pulls out a different $100 bill and the chain of custody is kind of, uh, is, uh, is mixed uh, and it kind of makes it harder for the government to track these transactions or um, if we're not going to get into zero knowledge proofs, but it basically makes it impossible to track these transactions. Um, because Tornado Cash is decentralized, it's a decentralized Ethereum smart contract, the government can't stop it directly, um, but uh, they were able to stop it indirectly. Um, of course, you know, this is the type of thing Ethereum was created for, to have smart contracts that the government can't stop, but it looks like they have, we have our ways. Um, government is now trying to stop it by sanctioning coins that have been used by Tornado Cash. So it's like, I don't know if you've been using your coin for this way or that way, but I know you got it from the tornado. So this means that if it's not funded, uh, that if it's been through the system, even if you weren't doing anything wrong with it, 
those funds are still sanctioned. So Tornado Cash, you know, the, the developers, I believe, have been in the United States. They've been shut down. Um, essentially, uh, the uh, Department of, of Treasury has imposed sanctions on them. And, you know, if, if, if you, you're, you're feeling about the word sanctions, you, you get the feeling of international sanctions. Um, yes, it's the same, same type of thing as international sanctions because they think that uh, some of these countries, uh, these rogue states, um, have, been, have been using it. Uh, so uh, that was my main question. It was like, what, what does that mean, sanctions? So, so far, unless Ethereum centralization makes this possible in the future, it doesn't mean that you can't spend those coins if you use Tornado Cash and you got out and like trade them. But for legally operating U.S. businesses, that'll be illegal, so it would have to go underground. So that breaks what's called the fungibility of the coins. So fungibility uh, would mean that each ETH is uh, each Ethereum is equivalent to every other Ethereum. Each Bitcoin is equivalent to any other Bitcoin. If I have a hundred dollar bill, you have a hundred dollar bill. We trade, we're even. They're, they're they're worth the same thing. And we see in this instance how the question of whether ETH is uh, Ethereum is fungible is is well the answer is not quite. And um, of course that goes for for Bitcoin as well because you can kind of track the chain of custody and uh, in some cases. Um, it, it can be flagged, although it's not, it's not very common for most, most use cases. So another question that this raises, um, see, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not developing in the ecosystem, but I, I am good at raising questions about technology and, and, and also and, and, and legally what's going on. I think the question this raises is how far and how fast do we go down the slippery slope of what happened to Tornado Cash? Are they going to track Everyone, obviously, you can't know what every uh, what's happening in every wallet and every you know the the ledger is pseudonymous as pseudonymous. Anyway, I I should be uh, better at pronouncing that word, but you can't track every single wallet, um, and they don't. I don't think they want to. But how far can we go in the future in terms of how much? you know, freedom that these things were supposed to represent, how much privacy these things were supposed to represent will be lost. Um, so when I analyze a slippery slope argument, I often ask, is there, a, is there a counterbalancing slope? Is there a way to push against it? And I think in crypto, there is, uh, even within the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, I do think you'll see alternative privacy solutions and Ways to transact in, in even ways to transact in sanction coins effectively. They'll, I think they'll be worth a lot worth less um, for the for for people who are transacting on the black market. Um, you know, I don't recommend it, but I'm just saying. Like, I, I I think because there's a lot of unstoppable code in Ethereum as of now, there'll be ways of doing it. Um, so I I think we do have an arms race between regulators and the developers of this technology. Uh, I do think the, the maximum applies, like, you know, the, the internet sees uh, censorship as damage and route, routes around it. So I, I think we'll see some of that. Um, hopefully for right now, if you're not running a rogue state or you're not involved in a kind of a massive money laundering operation, you won't be targeted. But if you look for privacy options and invest in them, then you'll protect yourself for the future. And so hopefully I'll be looking for some of that. Uh, there are reasons to support privacy, remember, of others, even if you don't need it yourself. Um, as, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all about like what kind of society do you want to live in. So rather than being a, a FUD or a negative story, we can look at this kind of tornado cash thing as a way to catalyze innovation. 
and as a way to get people looking at privacy uh, in terms of Web3 cryptocurrency and just privacy on the internet in general, which more and more people are, are interested in. So other related developments to look into, if you're interested in privacy coins, one that we can look into more, uh, particularly you know, maybe, maybe another episode, is uh, a Zcash and other privacy coins. Um, is, uh, Zcash, I believe, is a truly fungible cryptocurrency. It's, you know, it's small. It's got about a $1 billion market cap as opposed to, I think, uh, half a trillion right now for Bitcoin, $100 a billion for Ethereum. So much lower. Another one um, recommended is Monero. These are relatively small. Some people are interested in. Perhaps there will also be features built into Ethereum and Bitcoin that approach this, uh, this level of, uh, of, of privacy. We will see. Another development, of course, that we've been following on the show is the Lightning Network. We covered the Lightning Network, which is built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, we covered it in episode 212 with Guy Swan back in February. Yeah, I think it's a good time to check back in. Uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, with, you know, just in terms of thinking about what happened to Tornado Cash, if you have a custodial Lightning Network, if you're relying on some third-party service to run the Lightning Network in order to pay people back and forth, then you have to stay within, you know, pretty strict regulations and, uh, and, uh, and, and controls of whatever country you're in. Uh, with some technology work, you can get around this, such as running it yourself. Uh, I, I admit I haven't done it yet, um, but um, uh, but uh, it, it's it still remains to be seen whether that will be something that will happen a lot or a little bit. I think that most people are just happy using um, you know using uh, the, the easiest version of the technology. We, we we've learned that from the internet, and so that has the least amount of privacy, and maybe people don't care. Uh, but hopefully there's some innovation in terms of making it like a truly, uh, I, I think what we want is like, you know, a truly private, decentralized, uh, uncensorable uh, monetary system. At least that's what uh, a lot of people who believe in freedom want and a lot of people who are involved in Bitcoin want that. Um, so, um, okay, so, you know, another way to look at it, maybe, you know, lightning is about fast transactions. And I think people should possibly rely on the main on-chain layer of Bitcoin if they want the full uncensorable power of Bitcoin. Um, and uh, that is that going to be enough? Um, it, it, I think it makes sense, but I guess my open question is, is that going to be enough? So Coinbase uh, did some research on that. Uh, the people at Coinbase, they put out uh, an a whole article about Lightning Network recently. So some of the biggest crypto, current, uh, uh, crypto companies are interested in this kind of technology, and um, they've been very impressed. Uh, the, the post is called, Is Bitcoin Lightning for Real? Uh, it, they say that the Lightning Network shows impressive growth, and the, the growth has continued over quite a few number of years. It hasn't just been growing for two years. It's been growing for like five years at, at, at a, a good rate. So that's pretty good to see. Uh, the growth is denominated in Bitcoin. So the amount of transactions in the Lightning Network goes down in terms of dollars when Bitcoin goes down in dollars. So it's very interesting. There's kind of a good question about that. 
is what's, what's the right metric. Uh, I think they've got it right that the right metric is to denominate it in terms of Bitcoin. And so, you, you know, you don't see those ups and downs in terms of just the price of Bitcoin, but I feel like there could be an argument um, on the other side. So it keeps growing in terms of, of, of Bitcoin, how much value is in the Lightning Network and how much is being transacted. Uh, they believe at Coinbase that this could one day disrupt payment processors like Visa. So I'll read the last section for you. This article should not be construed as an indication that Coinbase has imminent plans to add support for Lightning. Rather, a few employees at the company simply found its potential compelling enough to research, write, and share. With that said, it's not hard to be encouraged by the growth that Lightning Network is showing, particularly over the last six months. It is noteworthy that this growth is coming in a bear market where Bitcoin fees are relatively low. In a future bull market, we could see lightning activity spike as fees on the base chain rise, sending users looking for cheaper ways to transact. If growth of the lightning network continues, it will have major implications on the future utility and value of the world's oldest and most valuable digital asset. So these are some interesting things to think about. What do you think? Join our locals maximum.locals.com. Tell me what you think about uh, all this stuff. People in the cryptoverse tend to have very strong opinions. I tend to kind of read and amalgamate lots of different opinions. So uh, I, uh, I'm curious to know what you think. You can also email the program localmaxradio at gmail.com. Seriously, if you have a particular uh, you know, take or issue of, of anything I just said, uh, let me know. I'll read it on the, on the program. So now, and by the way, I, I admit I'm going to have a jingle for this, but I don't have a jingle for this, so I'll just do the drum roll. Now is, ooh, that kind of made that coil uh, give me some, uh, some of those. Drum roll, please. Distribution of the week. We're going to talk about the multinomial distribution. Um, so what is the multinomial distribution? Is probability distribution uh, in terms of our you know, probability distribution of the week. Uh, 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 segment. I often use this interchangeably with the categorical distribution. Uh, so if you remember from a previous episode, the categorical uh, distribution is just when you have several different categories of events. Maybe you have, maybe you're rolling a, a die and you have six sides. So the event is going to be one of those six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you assign a probability to each one. So that's a categorical distribution. But a multinomial distribution is, is like that, except you repeat it multiple times. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's essentially categorical distribution that's repeated n times, and then it's a distribution of the, of the, of the counts of the results that you get. So. If you remember correctly, uh, if I remember correctly, a couple episodes we went over the binomial distribution. And this is a this is a, a multinomial distribution. Well, it has the same word. Binomial distribution just means uh, a two-category uh, multinomial distribution, and so that's when there are two categories in n trials. So you have a coin that you flipped, a weighted coin, and you flip the coin a whole bunch of times, and you want to see what the results could be. So let's say I, I flip the coin three times. I could have zero heads. I could have one head. And 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 and, uh, and uh, two tails. I could have two heads and one tail, or I could have three heads and zero tails. Uh, so if I flip the coin three times, 
that gives me four different possible outcomes, um, interestingly enough. So it's two outcomes each time, overall four different outcomes, and that could all kind of be plotted on a line. Um, and so each of those four outcomes are going to be assigned a probability. So the multinomial distribution is like this, but it gets so much more complicated because if there are more than two categories, there are so many different ways the chips could fall. So, you know, for example, uh, let's suppose there are five categories. Um, I have some kind of five-sided die or something, and I have a pen pentagon die, or I don't know, and then I have uh, 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 10 trials. Well, uh, how many different ways of, uh, are there to, uh, how, how many different outcomes are there? Well, I could have all 10 be on one category, so that's five right off the bat. I could have nine on one and one on the other. Uh, I could have eight on one and two on another and then zero on the rest, or I could have eight on one and then one on category two and then one on category three. And so, the, you know, there's so many different ways to partition these trials among the categories. And so this is, this is really at the heart of combinatorics in mathematics. There's a lot of really good mathematics here. Um, each of these configurations, uh, and there's a lot of them, now have to be assigned a probability. Uh, so um, let's take a, a, a simple example. Let's say, uh, let's say trinomials. I have three categories, and let's say I, I run it twice. So I could have both in category one, both in category two, both in category three, or I could be split between one and two. I could split between two and three. I could be split between one and three. Okay, so there's six possibilities there. That's not that bad. But you can imagine it gets worse and worse uh, as, as you go higher. And unlike in the binomial distribution where you're taking from one category and adding to another, because there are so many different categories here, you, know, you can't really plot this on a line. So the kind of dimensionality of it grows. Um, we spoke about Pascal's triangle uh, last time, which is related to the binomial distribution. So if you have a fair coin and you flip it twice, then there's, uh, you know, if there's uh, one chance it'll land on both heads, there's two chances for it to land on one heads and one tails, and there's one chance for it to land on, on, on both tails. And so that's a one, two, one. And then if you flip it three times, it's one, three, three, one, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now Pascal's triangle becomes Pascal's simplex. And we know from previously discovering the simplex, simplex is a, is a multi-dimensional object. So you can't really, uh, you can't really write it as nicely as the Pascal's triangle. Uh, but you know, uh, just like the Pascal's triangle uh, uses uh, the binomial theorem and the, the binomial distribution, uh, Pascal's simplex uses something called the multinomial distribution, and these have been worked out. Uh, you know, binomial distribution is n choose k, so it's like, um, okay, if I have, uh, you know, if I did 10 trials, uh, how many are, uh, how many ways are there to choose four? Let's say four, four, uh, coin tosses landed on heads, but I don't know which four of the 10 because they're numbered. So which of the four of the 10 landed on heads and how many different ways are there to get four heads if you, if you change which ones are, are heads, but there have to be four. That is the binomial distribution. The multinomial distribution, you have like many different categories to choose from. And so it gets very complex, but I, 
I will assure you, maybe I'll do uh, something at the whiteboard to make it more, uh, uh, more clear because this is not something that, you know, I, I, you can't use this audio uh, format to, um, to go through math like this, but uh, it's, uh, it's all been worked out and it's really cool math. And, I, and the multinomial distribution is applicable to many real-world applications. It's basically any probabilistic event that has a finite number of outcomes that's run a certain number of times. Um, so any repeated experiment where the outcome is categorical. Um, and that happens all the time. Um, there's actually an, an example from, from Foursquare where I used to work, and we talked about this all the way in episode three, where in venues, people were leaving ratings on Foursquare venues, and there were three different emoji ratings that you could leave. There was like, dislike, and meh. And even though there's kind of a, uh, you know, there's kind of an order to that, it's like like is the best, meh is in the middle, and dislike is the worst, uh, we kind of could consider them as three different categories of what a person rating the venue will choose. And, you know, if we consider each person rating as independent, then we can look at the distribution of likes and dislikes and meh. And so I've done, a, I did a bunch of models for Foursquare that assumed that was, that like, you know, modeled that as a multinomial distribution, three different categories. Um, so, uh, and, and it worked very, very well. Uh, so this raises the question, could you have repeated applications of infinite distributions? And, you know, I think you can. I'm sure it's been studied. We will have to get back to you on that. But for now, I'd like to know, um, do you have any good examples of multinomial distributions that you've used? Um, or do you have any questions for me about this? Um, please let us know at the locals, maximum.locals.com. Or if you just want to send me, shoot me a quick email, uh, shoot me one at localmaxradio at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the trend of no code. Could it be any good if people who uh, people want to write no code at all? Well, it turns out that there's a little bit more to the no code uh, movement than just writing uh, no code. So uh, uh, my guest, uh, my guest, will explain that to you. Also, an interview on the connection between category theory and databases in computer science. Really fascinating foundational stuff that's right up my alley. So I, I think with some of these interviews, we're kind of getting into the meme where the, with, with the brain that's like shooting out lasers at this point. Like at first it's kind of light. Now it's like really shooting out all the lasers. So we might have to stop on our way to doing all these episodes with kind of a few fun episodes, and social criticism or complaining about stuff or, or, or do some episodes with Aaron along the way because this is getting pretty insane. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.